Amen. We'll turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're in a series entitled Unfinished, and we come to one of the most prominent, most transforming, most cataclysmic events in the book of Acts. And not only in the book of Acts, but in all of human history. Bible scholars say that second probably only to the birth and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ um, would be the conversion of Saul the Pharisee to Christianity and to being a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, There's nothing really except a part of a miracle that could tell us that a man who was so hell-bent on destroying Christianity would in a one fell swoop bow the knee and trust Jesus as his Savior and Lord. And as we come to this text in Acts chapter 9, we are reminded that God is on rescue missions. There's something about rescue missions in our world that captivate us. They become uh, the stories that we see in our cinemas. We're riveted by the stories as we watch rescue missions unfold. And over the last couple decades, there's been some very notable rescue missions that have been incredibly successful that it quite frankly take your breath away. I wasn't born, but I've had the joy of chronicling it in the movie Apollo 13. But if you remember, the astronauts of Apollo 13 are pretty much left for dead out in space with no real opportunity for us to send up a rescue mission to get him, get them the astronauts found themselves as good as dead. But with great thinking and great teamwork, not only by the astronauts, but also the technicians at NASA, our three astronauts would one day come home safe and sound. And stories would be told and and told again about all of the different things that made that rescue mission possible. Now, I'm not that old, but I was old enough to remember in the mid to late 80s when our attention turned to Midland, Texas, when we had heard of a story of a group of kids that were playing uh, tag and hide and seek in a backyard, and a little girl about 18 months of age, Jessica McClure, would find herself falling down a, a pipe for a well that was no wider than 15 inches in diameter. For 60 hours, she would find herself pinned 20 feet underground. The United States, and for that matter, the world was mesmerized at how this group of people were going to find a way to get this baby out alive. And after 60 hours, and after amazing work, there she is. Baby Jessica, now in her 30s, uh, rem- uh, reminisces and, and is blown away by the rescue mission that saved her life. We fast forward to some uh, not too de- distant uh, past. Uh, how about Captain Phillips? He was a part of the captain and the crew of the Maersk uh, shipping uh, boat that uh, was taken by Somali pirates. And for four days, he would find himself in a little boat, that orange boat there, in the Indian Ocean off of the coast of Somalia. And it would take the U.S. military with all its might to come to his aid and to rescue him unharmed while he was being held hostage by armed assailants. Again, that's been made into a movie, the movie entitled Captain Phillips. And then finally, uh, it would take 69 days for 33 Chilean miners to be rescued hundreds of feet underground under a mountain. And after a lot of trials and errors, 
69 days into it, we would see the um, capsule would start one by one drawing those men out. What is it about search and rescue missions that captivate us? Well, we know that right away, a life hangs in the balance. There is something knowing that if we don't respond, they will die. And so uh, our world almost stops and does everything in their power to save that member or members of humanity because we know if they don't, all hope is lost. As we look at Acts chapter 9, I want to remind you of an important truth this morning. God is on rescue missions for people. God is out, and the Bible says that Jesus' mission was to seek and to save that which was lost. The two great pillars, seeking and saving, are the very heart of rescue missions. And He has rescued. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you did not come to Jesus on your own. You did not make a decision that would then somehow compel Jesus to come your way. But you were lost, you were blind, you were held captive by the evil one. And Jesus came and He came running to set you free. And the Bible says when Jesus does that, as He pulls us from the abyss of sin, out of the clutches of the devil's hands, when we are brought into the kingdom of God, a great party breaks out in heaven. In fact, Jesus would use parables in Luke 15 to describe that we are people who are lost. He uses a lost sheep and a lost coin and a rebellious son to illustrate how lost and broken and in trouble we really are. And so in our text today, we come to one of the most dramatic rescue experiences that God has ever done. And God is going to use things that may quite frankly seem outside of our own conversion story. I was, excuse me, I was uh, uh, found by Jesus as a young boy in a Sunday school class hearing the gospel message. I placed my faith and trust in Him. There were no lights. There was no persecution as much as the Sunday school teachers might have said I was bad. There was no persecution during that time by me. And so it's easy for me to say, well, I don't have a conversion story like Saul. But I want you to know, no matter where you find yourself, if you call yourself a child of God, you have been the recipient of God's seeking and rescuing you from your sin. And a part of Saul's story is a story for you and I. There are three things I want you to see this morning as we look at God's rescue mission. Number one, God's rescue mission, God's rescue mission shows us, shows us the reach of God's grace. With every one of those four stories I just told you, you would be in awe of some of the things people did that enabled the rescue to take place. One of the great things I love about the, the movie Apollo 13 that chronicles the story of getting those astronauts out of a broken down spaceship back to Earth is how NASA literally had to reinvent the spaceship and use it for a completely different task than they thought. New technology was built in those days based on what NASA had done. And what that tells us is, is that we have a capacity when we need to go and save somebody, 
that we can dig into things that we never thought possible. Well, as Christians, we need to recognize that when we look at Saul, who is a great persecutor, Saul, who was a great rebel against God, we see how infinite God's grasp for us as sinners is. None of us stand hopeless or helpless outside of the grace of God. What I'm saying is, is if God could save Saul from Tarsus, then he can save everyone in this place. Because Saul was about as bad as it could get. And we see God and his grace stretching. And within the grasp of every person alive today. And so we can take heart. And maybe today we feel broken. Maybe today we feel like we are uh, so bad that we are outside the grace of God. You are not. Maybe we wonder about that individual who uh, lives in our community or maybe is in our family or maybe we work with. And we say, uh, they, they've done too much or they're too hard-hearted. They're outside of the grace of God. No, they aren't. Today we see the reach of God's grace. You see, in Paul we see God rescues all kinds of people. Number one, he rescues those who mask a relationship with God with religion. We're told in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, Paul gives his pedigree, his biography. And it's pretty glowing. He says, listen, when it comes to uh, my zeal for Judaism, for my religion, when it comes to following the rules of my religion, I'm faultless. I'm blameless. I did everything by the book. When it came to zeal for all of the the different festivals, when it came to zeal for all of the religious practices, man, I nailed it with 100% accuracy. But the problem is, is nowhere in Scripture does it ever say that Paul, Saul, I'll do that a lot because he becomes the Apostle Paul after his conversion, that Saul ever was in love with God. It never says that he had a vibrant and growing relationship with God. And you say, well, does it ever say that of anyone else? Sure, in another chapter, we're going to see Cornelius, who is a Gentile, who has come to the realization that the Jewish faith, the Jewish religion, is one that is something he could put his life behind. And Cornelius buys into the Jewish religion. But what Cornelius has got going for him that Saul didn't, was Cornelius, it was a heart thing. God acknowledges in Cornelius, not only you are a God-fearing man, but I have recognized your giving and your ministry and your service to me. Even though you're ignorant of Jesus Christ, even though you don't know the whole story, I know you desire to love me, I know you desire to follow me, and I just need to get a missionary there to tell you the rest of the story. Of Saul, it is never said. He has zeal for his religion, but not zeal for Jesus. Which should stop us this morning, and everyone who has ears, let them hear this. Might it be that we don't have a relationship with Jesus, but a zeal for an institution called the church? You see, Saul shows us that while he had the pedigree He missed the person of Jesus Christ. 
And we need to ask the question this morning, am I involved in an institution? Am I involved in a community of people? Am I involved in some sort of community center that somehow makes me feel good? Or am I radically and transformingly changed by the person of Jesus Christ who has forgiven me of my sins? Saul shows us, listen, he shows us that you can go through all of the rituals and be public enemy number one of Christ and his kingdom. Because he looked really good. And some of us are masking any kind of relationship with Jesus, any kind of change that Jesus might bring to our lives with religion. And Saul found himself doing that. He was a Pharisee climbing the religious ladder. And some of us may find ourselves deceiving ourselves in doing the exact same thing. Notice number two. Saul was a ruthless man. He was marked by ruthlessness. Let's pick up the scriptures now. Now we've met Saul before, even before we got to Acts chapter 9. Some weeks ago before Christmas, we learned about Saul. And we learn about Saul in verse 58 of chapter 7. Stephen is about to be stoned. He has been preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. He's been preaching it to a local synagogue, the synagogue of the freedmen, where men from, listen, this is very important, where people from Paul's birthplace went to synagogue. And so there's a good chance that Stephen and Saul not only went to the same temple, but probably knew each other very well. Saul probably knew Stephen before Stephen's conversion to Christianity. And we see that the people are so angry at what Stephen has been preaching, that Jesus is the Messiah whom they've killed, but Jesus has been raised from the grave. Verse 58 says, Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died. Now notice the next verse. And Saul approved of his execution. This associate, this participant, co-participant in temple worship, Saul hates the movement of Christ so much that if you hold allegiance to Jesus Christ, then Saul says, I want you dead. And I give approval to any execution in in that way. Now notice, that day there arose a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And all the Christians were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But notice, here's Saul again. But Saul was ravaging the church. That's a wild animal, ripping apart its prey. He is going, he's seeking them out, and when he gets them into his clutches, he rips them from limb to limb. Who is he doing this to? Notice it says, men and women. Twice Luke tells us that. Here in chapter 8 and at the beginning of chapter 9. Men and women. And the idea here is that the hostility of Saul is so great, usually you would just deal with the men. The women would follow suit, right? You strike down the man, you imprison the man. Women, they'll fall into line and all of that. No. Saul says it's not good enough just to go after the men and make them an example. We're going to go after the women as well. 
And he hunts them down, and he imprisons them. But notice it gets even worse. Chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing out threats, and now notice murder. It's not good enough to commit you just to jail. Saul says, listen, I'm going to take things into my own hand. We're just going to kill you. We're just going to end your life. You're a blasphemer. And because I think that this is something that is so grave, I'm going to deal with it. And Saul says in my own way, he's going to put people to death. How far will he go for it? It says that he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. That's 150 miles from Jerusalem to the north. Let me ask you something. How many of you, for a passion, would walk 150 miles over all kinds of terrain to accomplish your goal? This guy is resilient. I'll travel wherever I have to go to kill whoever I have to to silence this faith in this person, Jesus Christ, once and for all. He is a ruthless man. Each of us, no doubt, have someone who we think is ruthless in our lives. Maybe they're in our family, maybe they're in our workplaces, maybe they're at our school. They are people that hate the the name of Jesus, they hate our Christianity. But none of them, listen, none of them can compare to Saul. Saul is a biography of public enemy number one of Christ. And if Saul can be changed, listen, your enemy can. That person that you have consigned to hell, that person that you say, there's no way, mom, there's no way, dad, there's no way, sister or brother, there's no way so-and-so at work, there's no way that kid at school will ever experience the grace and love of Jesus Christ. They're too hard. They're too angry. They're too hostile towards God. Sorry, God, but you cannot reach them. When God reached out and met Saul, he reminds us that every one of those people are with Within the grasp of God's grace. And so we should be pursuing them. We should be loving them. We should never think that there's a hopeless case among us. He's marked with ruthlessness. Notice, he's also one who is rescued from his rebellion. Because Saul is moved to rebellion. Notice in our passage, and And again, Luke's probably not meaning this, but give me a little artistic license for a moment. Notice the text says in verse 3, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Now I want you to know, when it says he's on his way, what is he going to do? He's going to thwart Christianity. He's going to go and live against the will and word of God. He's going to do what he deems best. Why is he going to Damascus? Because he has reasoned in his own mind that he, in essence, is God, and he gets to determine who lives and dies. He gets to determine that people get to worship the way he wants them to worship. Listen, Saul, in verse 3, is going to Damascus in direct rebellion against God. 
And maybe today you're not hiding behind religion. And maybe today you're not a ruthless individual. And you say, listen, I've never thought about killing anybody. I don't steal from people. Uh, None of that. The Bible tells us, and Josh told us during the communion time, what the book of Isaiah tells us, that we all like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. Well, the Bible says that isn't just distraction. Hey, don't worry about it. The Bible calls that rebellion. And just like Saul, we're heading our own way. We're doing our own thing. We've not asked God, God, would you have this of me? If if Saul was a true God-fearing God follower, he would have stopped and he would have prayed and he would have asked the question, God, am I fighting against you? Remember back when uh, Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin and Gamaliel, who is, by the way, Saul's teacher, says, listen, let this go. Because if Jesus has truly died, these people will give up the ghost, if you will, and go home. But if you fight this, Gamaliel says, if you fight this, you may find out that you're really not fighting against people, but you're fighting against God. Saul is going against the direct orders of his rabbi, his teacher, and he has come to the point without praying to God, without asking God, I'm going to destroy Christianity, and little does he know, though he thinks he's doing right, that he's the greatest enemy opposed to Christianity. He's rebelling against God. Now Paul, Saul, Paul, would later say in the book of Romans that he wasn't the only rebel. In Romans chapter 1, he says that in our sin, we are at enmity with God as sinners. We're at war with God. We're at odds with God. And the reason why we're at odds is we choose to go our own way. Even as followers of Jesus Christ, each and every day we struggle of saying, not my will, God, but your will be done in my life. And that hostility is rebellion. And we are reminded today that as rebels, God still gives us grace. As was said at communion, God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were religious fakes, while we were ruthless creatures, while we were rebellious people, Christ died for us. No one is outside of the grasp of God's grace. No one. Number two, we see that God's rescue mission stops us in our tracks. It stops us in our tracks. You would have thought that it would take all the might of heaven to stop this wild boar to stop this savage animal, Saul. You would have thought God would have worked himself up into a lather. He'd find himself sweating to try to deal with this aggressive and angry and hostile opponent. But he doesn't. How long did it take for him to change Saul? Years? Months, days, notice in our text a couple words that I think are important. How long did it take? Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, 
if you circle or underline or take notes, write down that word, suddenly. Suddenly. All at once is maybe a better definition. A light from heaven, and then another word, flashed. Suddenly and flashed don't tell me a long process. They don't tell me an arduous journey. They tell me all at once in a flash, this hater of God became a lover of God. Now this tells us a couple things, just very quickly. Number one, it tells us that it is God who is active, and it is us who are passive in salvation. While no doubt we carry a responsibility, the sovereignty of God rules the day in our salvation. Saul didn't see it coming. Saul wasn't looking for Jesus. Saul wasn't hoping for Jesus. Saul was on his way to kill Jesus' followers. And God, by His sovereignty and by His sovereign grace, illuminates the face and the eyes of this man and stops him dead in his tracks. Number two, it tells us that while altogether at once this took place, conversion is an instantaneous change of heart that happens in the life of a believer, that there was a process to it. Now, not in our text, and, uh, but in Acts 26.14, you see Saul would tell his story of conversion three times. Here in Acts 9, and then finally uh, he would do so later in one of his missionary journeys, and finally in Acts 26, verse 14, he tells the story. And each time he tells a story, he gives us a little bit more information. In Acts 26, 14, he says that when the flash comes and Jesus speaks to him, Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? That's in our text. But he says, are you growing tired of kicking against the goads? Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about? What's a goad? In first century time, and even in agricultural time, a goad was a stick or, or some sort of, of long um, branch of some sort that they would attach something prickly, something that would uh, garner the attention, maybe a part of a bone fragment or something that would be used that when you hit the oxen with this goad, you would tell it, hey, listen, I'm getting your attention. I want you to do something that you're not doing, so I'm going to goad you until you do what I say. And the animal, no doubt, being goaded along will kick, trying to figure out, why are you doing that? Cut that out. That doesn't feel good. I don't want to do what you're telling me to do. And so Saul tells us that God says to him, Jesus says to him, you're kicking against the goats. Well, what could the goats have been? What could the goats have been? Well, I want you to know these goads are what captures Saul's attention. They capture Saul's attention, and God captures our attention at that moment of conversion, but he's done so along the way. Now, some believe that the goads that Saul was kicking at was the life and teaching of Jesus, and they, the speculation goes like this. Jesus and Saul were contemporaries, both residing at the same time in and around Jerusalem, both are very highly known individuals. Saul growing in his role as a Pharisee. Jesus as an as a itinerant preacher and rabbi. Uh, no doubt, 
at least Saul knew of the renown of Jesus around the time of Jesus' life and death. We're told that Jesus would spend lots of time in the temple. We know that Pharisees invested a lot of time at the temple in Jerusalem. And maybe they had some connections. And maybe some of Jesus' message and some of Jesus' miracles had started to affect Saul. Now here's the problem with that. The Bible doesn't tell us anywhere that Saul and Jesus ever met or had any connections before, before meeting on the Damascus Road. The second one is, is that it could have been the love and the sincerity and the passion of the early church, of the early Christians. That as the persecution went on, Saul is watching these people, and they're kind people, and they're loving people, and they're praying and forgiving their persecutors for the peril that those persecutors are bringing to their lives. But again, Saul never speaks to that either. And while Saul never says what the goads are, most scholars believe that it is in fact the impact of Stephen's death that has really began to wreak havoc in the heart and mind of Saul. And the reason why, look back to Acts chapter 7, the reason why is because Stephen prayed for Saul. Notice what he says in verse 60. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who was included in that them? Saul. Listen, Stephen's prayer in Acts 7 is answered in Acts 9. God forgives Saul for the death of Stephen and all of Saul's other sins. And I want you to know, and if you've been saved, especially as an adult, I think you could probably, if you do just some thinking about it, you will see how God has goaded you all along the way up to the point of salvation. Put people in your lives. Brought His Word into your life. Allowed circumstances, even difficult ones, to impact you in such a way that when Jesus appeared to you, you were ready and you just didn't even know it. He captures our attention. Notice number two, He convicts us of sin. So He appears to Saul, and right away He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't say, hey Saul, how's the weather down there? He doesn't say, hey Saul, where are you going? He doesn't say, hey Saul, you want to go do dinner? He goes right to the issue. Listen, Saul, we've got a problem. You're fighting me. And I'm the holy God who calls the shots, and I do not stand idly by allowing a little piece of mud like a human being that you are to tell me that you're going to try to destroy me and my kingdom work here on earth. We've got a problem. You're a sinner. And what God does at conversion is He does what He did to Saul. He convicts us of our sin. Hey, Tim, you've got a problem. You can't live that way. You're not God. I am, is what God is saying. And I'm holy, and I'm righteous, and you're sinful, and you're broken, and you've got the problem. I don't, God says. You do. 
And you've got to fix this. You've got to realize this. You've got to come to a place. Uh, one commentator said there wasn't so much a conversion as it was a surrender. Recently, I was watching a uh, World War II documentary on Netflix. And at the end of this documentary, which was like 14 or 15 episodes long, they dedicate time to the inevitable surrender of the Axis powers in World War II. And both, and it was new to me, both surrenders weren't instantaneous surrenders. They happened over a long period of time. And here's why. You wonder, how could we drop two atomic bombs on Japan and Japan not surrender right away? Well, they did kind of surrender. But their surrender was always with the yeah, buts. So Japan said, okay, we surrender. Uncle, we give up. You've dropped bombs, you're decimating our cities, and your president has said, we will continue to drop bombs until you finally give up. So we give up. We don't know how you're doing this, and so we give up. But we want sovereignty of our people. We want a standing army. We want our emperor to stay in power. And on more than seven different occasions, the Japanese people came to the allied forces and said, yeah, but, we will surrender, yeah, but, this, or yeah, but, that. Until finally, they got down on their knees and said, no, yeah, buts. Unconditional surrender. Listen, some of us have thought we have surrendered to God but we have a bunch of yeah buts. I surrender to you, God, but make sure my life goes well, because if it doesn't, I'm out of here. God, I'll surrender to you if you allow me to keep that pet sin. God, I'll surrender to you if you allow me to keep those acquaintances that I know are wrong. God, I'll surrender to you, but I get to keep my money. God, I surrender to you, but I get to have prerogative over my life. And I'm going to tell you something. It is only if it is complete and total surrender that conversion can take place. Have you utterly and completely surrendered to Jesus? Because if you haven't, then you're not saved. Saul surrenders. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, he says, whom you are persecuting. So rise up and enter the city and you will find, you'll be told what you are to do. So he convicts us of sin. You're fighting against me, and I want you to notice, you, listen, your sins may be against other people. Saul's sins were against other people. But Jesus took them personally. Because while we may sin against our fellow man, we sin against God first and foremost. And so he commands our obedience. How do we know if Saul was being converted? Will he obey? So the conversation seems relatively short. At least that's how Luke shares it. Paul's give, or Saul is given a set of orders. Go to Damascus and wait. Don't pass go. Don't collect $200. Go to Damascus and wait for me. And what does Saul do? He does that. You know, we long wonder, how do we know if a person is saved? I will tell you, don't look at their prayers. Don't look at the words they share. Look at their obedience. Saul is told what to do, and he does it. He does it. 
And that's where God in His grace doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave Saul broken and on the ground, blinded by this light on the road to Damascus. He says, get up. I want you to head in this direction. And that's what God does at our conversion. He sends us in a new direction. He sends us in a direction. And so the direction is Damascus. But his journey to Damascus is going to be very different than it was just a moment before. Because the road to obedience, number one, is a humbling one. He's been changed. His heart has been changed. He no longer is going to fight against the goads of of God. He's no longer going to persecute Jesus and His church. But there's been a physical change as well. He's blind. He's blind. And so this man, who was the one who was leading the journey, probably way ahead of his group, right? So excited about killing and hurting more Christians, now is a humbled and broken man who's being led by the hand into the city of Damascus, the city he wanted to conquer for his religion. And some of us have experienced the humbling work of God where in a moment's change... We went from being proud and arrogant and full of ourselves and all kinds of dreams and plans for ourselves to being humbled by God where now someone else is leading us along the way. It's a humbling experience. Number two, the walk of obedience is daunting without help. So Saul, God could have left him by himself. For three days he left him in the dark. But notice what's going on. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And Ananias said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and go to the house of Judas. Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so he might regain his sight. Let's stop there. Saul needed someone. Saul needed someone to come and to help him, to heal him from his brokenness. Saul needed someone to help him understand what God's next plans for him were. Saul needed someone to encourage this young Christian in the faith. And this Ananias would come in. Verse 17, he departs and enters the house. And laying hands on him, he said two of the most tender words that could have ever been shared. Brother Saul. Brother Saul. You see, we're a part of a family. And we're a part of a family because we need one another in our walk with Jesus Christ. Listen, when we're here in the worship services, there's a bunch of Ananiases serving our kids. A bunch of Ananiases who's showing little kids of their need for Jesus. Of what it means to live like Jesus. Of what it means to follow Jesus. You have an Ananias who's leading your small group. You have Ananiases who are leading you as elders. You have Ananiases who are ministering to you as spiritual mentors. People who have taken you under their wing and said, walk with me as I walk towards Christ. It's a word to all of us that if we've been saved for any amount of time, that we should take up the mantle of Ananias and mentor others. Because without it, the Christian walk would be really, really hard. It would be hard. And God, by His grace, gave us the church by which we could grow. Now, if you're Ananias, 
It's a harrowing calling. Notice in the text, Ananias receives this vision. Verse 13, he answers the Lord, Lord, I've heard about this man. Are you sure, Lord? I wonder if his voice quivered a little bit. Lord, are you sure? This man, notice what he says. How much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's here and has authority from the high priest to bind all who call on your name. God, are you serious, Ananias is saying? I want to stretch, Lord. But wouldn't it be better if I went and killed him while he's blind? Wouldn't it be better for the kingdom if we went and beat him up so severely that he would never ever think about coming back and attacking Christians again? Wouldn't that be better? Ananias shows us that many times what we think is the best plan isn't the best plan. And sometimes God wants us to step out in faith and in love and in compassion and grace and minister to people we never thought we'd ever have to. Can I just be honest with you? I think Ananias hated Saul. Rightly so, right? From a human standpoint, he had to have struggled. The early church had to have struggled with hating Saul. He was their worst nightmare. But Ananias is reminded of the words of Jesus where we love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us. And he goes and he does that. Finally, we'll see the road, of, uh, the road of obedience is not only harrowing at times for us, but it's hard. And we'll get to this more, so I won't spend a lot of time here. But let's pick up real quick, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And the text goes on, 17 through 19. And says Ananias does exactly what he's supposed to. He goes and lays hands on Saul. Saul regains his sight. Saul is baptized. And Saul begins the journey of a changed life. But that life wouldn't be easy. And some of us have bought into Christianity because we think that if I follow God, all will be good in my life. But what we're learning is the road of obedience for Saul was that he was going to leave the frying pan and get thrown into the fire. In the next passage, which we'll deal with next week, he is going to have his life threatened for preaching for the gospel. The hunter will become the hunted. We've seen a life change take place. C.S. Lewis in his book, Surprised by Joy, reminds us that God is on an all-out rescue journey. And he uses a couple illustrations to remind us of what God is doing to sinners right now. He's the fisherman reeling in the fish. He's the hound dog in pursuit of a fox. And finally, he's the divine chess player maneuvering and positioning, positioning all of his pawns into the most disadvantageous positions until his opponent finally concedes checkmate and gives his life to God. Like Saul, the rotten, filthy sinner that he was, reminds me of another sinner named John Newton, who experienced 
a profound and earth-shattering conversion from slave trade to Jesus. And he uttered these words, chronicling not only his own life, but the conversion of every one of us when he says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. If you have never experienced that amazing grace of God, don't leave this place until you have. Come talk to me. Come talk to the people at the Welcome Center. Talk to the people sitting next to you and say, listen, I want to know what it means to be rescued by God. I'll tell you, it will be the best thing you've ever done.